So we are in the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. Today we're going to talk about the king taking his kingdom. The king taking his kingdom. Before we do, let's pray together again. Father, thank you for this morning. Help us, Lord, to hear and to heed these last words, your last words, Lord Jesus. Help us to find our place in redemptive history, in, in the time and in, in place in which you have placed us, Lord. You have a mission for us. And God, I pray you'd help us be faithful. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are talking about the king taking his kingdom. Matthew chapter 28. Um, this is the end of the gospel of Matthew. And as you all know, if you're writing a, a work or a book or something like that, typically you choose your last words very carefully. So Matthew has crafted his sermon in such a way to get us to see who Jesus is And now what he wants us to do is he wants us to see the implications of that. In these final words, he's trying to say, if what I've said to you so far concerning Jesus is true, this is the result of that. This is how you should live as a result of that. The the reality of who Jesus is makes demands of us, right? If Jesus is the king of the cosmos... You can't just ignore a king. You have to, to, to ignore a king is to rebel against him. So Jesus makes demands and these are the demands on his, uh, of his life of, and of citizenship in his kingdom. That's what we're going to talk about as we talk about the king taking his kingdom this morning from Matthew chapter 28. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The Word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three things from our passage this morning. Number one. Jesus' resurrection stirs stirs us to worship. Jesus' resurrection stirs us to to worship. Number two, Jesus' power and presence sustains our mission. Jesus' power and presence sustains our mission. And then number three, Jesus' command sets the agenda. Jesus' command sets the agenda. But first, number one, Jesus' resurrection stirs us to worship. So, We're talking about the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is, you know, uh, 
it's traditionally understood that the author of this book is Matthew, who is one of the 12 apostles. He is bearing witness to what he has seen and heard. He's probably writing, you know, there's debate, but probably around 30 years, perhaps a little bit more than that. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's taking his memories, he's taking the dearly held traditions of the church, and he's passing them down in written form. Okay, and and so he's telling us what happened. But it's an unashamedly purposeful telling. He's telling us this story about Jesus, not just so that we would know about Jesus. He's telling us the story of Jesus so that we would believe in Jesus. So that we would see and understand who he is and, and see that, that who Jesus was and the claims that he made about himself demand a response. You can't just, you can't, you can't just ignore a man who rose from the dead. You can't just ignore a man who said that he was the fulfillment of all the scripture. He has to be reckoned with. And, and Matthew has taken pains to show that he, more than any other gospel, has quoted the Old Testament and has shown how Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God, how he came to solve the problem initiated by Adam, how he came to feel, fulfill the promise in Genesis 3.16, the first promise that an offspring of the woman would come and strike the serpent on the head. Uh, Matthew is going to show, has shown that Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture, the realization of every hope, the satisfaction of every longing. He is the king. The other major theme in Matthew that we've been talking about is the kingdom of God. Is the kingdom of God. Jesus is bringing in the kingdom through his death and resurrection. And through his death and resurrection, he has brought in the kingdom. Jesus now reigns from heaven. So it's not that one day Jesus will be king. It's that Jesus is king right now. Jesus reigns from heaven, from his throne. Jesus is Lord. That's the fundamental Christian proclamation. Jesus is Lord. Jesus reigns from heaven and he invites all people of every ethnicity from every place and language to turn from their sins and joyfully bow their knees and their hearts to him. And whoever does that, he as the king will graciously forgive all their rebellion. Everything that they had done in rebellion against him and against God, he will graciously forgive it. And he will grant them free and unfettered citizenship into his eternal kingdom. Why? Because that's the kind of king that he is. But the obstinate and the obstinately rebellious, he has clearly said that he will destroy with unquenchable fire. And so we see how Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. And we also talked a lot about how the the nature of the kingdom was mysterious. It was unexpected. Jesus didn't come first with a sword to strike down Rome and to make Israel great again, even though that's the kind of Messiah that most of the Jews wanted. Jesus said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. He said the kingdom is in your midst. It's it's quiet. It's less like a thunderclap and more like snow falling. 
It is here in our midst. Wherever a soul lives in glad submission to Jesus, there the kingdom is. Now, Jesus is coming back. The Bible is very clear about that. It will be cataclysmic. It will be earth shattering and world changing. Everybody who thought that Christians were crazy because they say, because we believe that one day the sky is going to split open and literally a man's going to descend from heaven. It sounds like utter lunacy until it happens. And then when it happens, it's too late. Jesus said, I will come back. And on that day, his kingdom on that day will be political in a sense because he will, in fact, set up a kingdom before which every modern nation will be crushed. His kingdom, we know, is the kingdom that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. You remember the dream? He saw this giant metal image and it was made of different kinds of metal. And the interpretation was that each part of the statue represented a different nation. These are the mightiest nations in human history, the the Babylonian kingdom, the Greek kingdom, the media Persian kingdom, uh, and then the Roman kingdom, okay? And yet, at the end of his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw something. Do you remember what he saw in the dream? He said that there was a stone cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. And the stone came, and it struck the feet of the image. It struck the nations, the kingdoms of the earth, and they were turned into dust before the stone. And then the stone grew into a mountain that filled the whole world. That's Jesus' kingdom. He is the stone, not cut by human hands, who comes and strikes the nations, and his kingdom replaces all earthly kingdoms, and they become dust before him. It is coming, but not at once. And that's what's mysterious about the kingdom. So in these closing words, we read some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. It's in verse 17 there, it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. If you, if you have thoughtfully read the Bible, that verse should, should really stand out to you. Because my Bible is over a thousand pages long. In over a thousand pages of the Bible, only consistently, only God is worshipped, rightly and truly. Anywhere where anyone or anything other than God is worshipped, God rebukes it and condemns it. Even in the rare instances when a human being sees a good and great being like an angel, and begins to worship it, the angel rebukes them and says, don't worship me, worship God. Everywhere, consistently in the Bible, it always does that. And here we have Jesus, and the disciples worship Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, stop. He receives the worship because he knows who he is. This, I think, is one of the most profound statements in the Bible. This, 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 really from silence. The fact that Jesus receives their worship when everywhere in the Bible it condemns worship of anyone besides God, Jesus is clearly saying, I'm God. And the disciples clearly knew that he was God. 
He accepts their worship. And so it just tells us that we have to reckon with this person named Jesus, right? Matthew wrote this story about a man who he saw and heard with his own two eyes. He was a real person. He really wrote it down 2,000 years ago. We're reading it today, and we have to decide what to do with this man that Matthew is telling us about. And we see that the disciples, over and over, they did not understand. They didn't get what was happening. And finally, though still dimly, they're beginning to have their false expectations wither in light of the resurrection of Jesus. They see him. They worship him. The resurrection should stir us to worship. The resurrection validates and vindicates everything that he said and did. He wasn't just some fraud. But he is the king. He is the the son of God. It says there that some doubted. There's debate about exactly what that's what's going on there. Um, It's possible, even though it's not obvious, it's possible that there were more more people there than just the eleven, and maybe it was some of those who doubted. The word doubt there doesn't really mean intellectual doubt as much as it means hesitation. But in other words, and this is amazing. It's amazing how you can see something with your own two eyes and still not quite get it. Not not quite grasp it. And that's what was happening to these disciples. They're seeing Jesus with their own two eyes, but they still just they're still in wonder of of like of of how can this be and like what is happening and like something greater than they ever ever grasped was happening. These disciples of Jesus literally, by God's grace and just his free choice, decided that these would be the men who would be party and privy to the greatest event that ever happened in human history, the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's just hard for them to piece that together. And yet, he's alive. And since he's alive, it means that everything is true. It means that he's worthy of worship right beside the Father. It means that the promise has been fulfilled, that the, that every hope has been realized, that, that Jesus came to undo the curse that Adam brought into the world. And that curse is really being undone by the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. And we all know that because Jesus is alive. And Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. So number one, Jesus' resurrection stirs us to worship. Number two, Jesus' power and presence sustains our mission. Jesus' power and presence sustains our mission. The, The final words of the Gospel of Matthew are known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission has energized the church for over two millennia. The last few centuries, if you, if you read about stuff like that, the last few centuries have seen an explosion in the world missions movement. Christianity is now one of, is now one of the major religions of the world. There's over, uh, I forget, I know there's over a billion or plus adherents or people who at least profess adherents to Christianity. There are followers of Jesus Christ on every continent, every country in the world. 
Jesus said that this would happen. And he also said how it would happen. It would be like leaven. We're 2,000 years out now from Jesus' death and resurrection. But guess what? Not a word of the Lord has has failed. It wasn't dramatic, but it was world-changing. And before we get to the commission itself, we have to look uh, and look at the command. I want you to notice that the command to make disciples, it's couched. The command to us to make disciples is couched between two statements about Jesus. And I want to focus on that because we tend to focus on ourselves but the whole point is that we miss the whole we miss crucial things about the command if we miss the fact that it is both prefaced and postscripted by things about Jesus so the command to make disciples isn't first about us it's first about Jesus and that is that the great commission cannot stand without out without what comes before and after it and that is Christ's power in Christ's presence. Christ's power and Christ's presence encompass the Great Commission so that the Great Commission cannot be fulfilled without Christ's power and Christ's presence. But because we have Christ's power and Christ's presence, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. It's not a question of if. It's just a question of when. Jesus said the testimony, the, 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 the gospel, the testimony of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end would come. And so that's all we're waiting on. And so he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. And so it's on the basis, the therefore is important, right? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, that is why we make disciples. Now, what does that mean? Okay, there's, there's several layers to it, and I just want to, I want to peel back those layers. Okay, so what does it mean for disciple making that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Layer number one, from the big picture scheme of things, is think about how God made humanity, and I talk about this a lot because it's so important to the biblical storyline. God made man to do what? To rule, right? Go and have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. Rule. God created humanity and he entrusted humanity with his authority to rule the earth. Okay, that was the, that, that was the high calling of what it meant to be human. But what did men do? Instead of great, gratefully accepting the entrusted authority of God and submitting to the rightful authority of God and wielding God's authority rightly in the world, we decided to rebel against God's authority and, and set up our own in its place. That's sin and rebellion. Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity failed to fulfill the calling to which we were made to fulfill as humans, that is to rule on God's behalf. Jesus, as the one whom Paul calls the second Adam, came in the fullness of time 
And he does what? He re-receives from God the authority that man was made to have in the beginning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus because Jesus succeeded where we failed. So that he could bring us back to God. And so now Jesus, as the God-man, will rule the world and his people through him will be restored to the divine image that we were made to be. And we will rule with him on his throne. And that's exactly what he says. We'll rule with him on his throne. Paul when the Corinthian believers were in all kinds of sinning and, 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 and taking one another to court, okay, and wasn't dealing with the problems within the church, Paul says, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? And you can't even handle a little conflict in your church? Do you know what it means to be human, to belong to God? To belong to Christ, who is the restored, renewed humanity? So that's layer number one. Layer number two is that who has all authority within a given realm? A king. A king. That's who has authority in in all a given realm. So we've said that a consistent theme in Matthew is the kingdom of God. At the at the, the first verse, the first verse in the book of Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you go back to my very first sermon in the gospel of Matthew, what I said was something like this. Why in the world would Matthew want to point out in the very first verse that Jesus is descended from David? Why? Because David was the king. And because God made David a promise that an heir of, from his own bloodline would reign over Israel. And so in the very first verse, Matthew is signaling to readers who are aware of the Old Testament saying, Jesus isn't just another dude. Jesus is the promised heir of David. He is the king. And then fast forward to the end of the book of Matthew. And Matthew says this. Jesus says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the king of heaven and earth. It's me. He's the king. Not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And all people from every tribe who gladly submit to my good rule will reign with me in my kingdom. But those who reject me reject the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. A third layer that I want to see about this is practically what Jesus' authority means. And one thing that it means is this. Jesus' authority means that we proclaim Christ and do good in his name and make disciples not on our own authority, but on Christ's authority. And Christ's authority is the greatest authority that there is. Every knee will bow And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every king, every pope, every prime minister, every president, every czar, every pharaoh, you name it. Their knee will bow and their tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does that mean? It means no government. 
No human office or human authority can tell us to not make disciples. Because we adhere to a greater authority than exists on this earth. Which is why disciples and Christians of all ages have had to stand up against rulers, governors, kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers and say, we serve a higher authority. And, and as, uh, as, uh, as Peter and John said in Acts chapter 4, he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We serve the king of the cosmos. And if at any point a earthly authority tries to command us to do something contrary to the authority of Jesus Christ, we must obey Christ rather than men. And I just want to say, as your pastor who watches the news from time to time, you better buckle up. And not think that this only happens in faraway lands and faraway times and places. Finally, it is because all authority belongs to Jesus. The final layer is that it is because all authority belongs to Jesus that he is worthy of the praise, adoration, and worship of the whole world. When it says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples. At least one thing it probably means is that as the one who possesses all authority, he alone is worthy of the worship of all nations, and therefore they need to know about him. Jesus is the sole possessor of all authority in the cosmos. Jesus is Lord of the United States of America. So every American needs to know that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of Europe. Therefore, every European needs to know that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of Asia. Therefore, every Asian needs to know that Jesus is Lord. Every African, every South American, they need to know that Jesus is Lord because he is Lord. And so, because Jesus has all authority, we must go and make disciples of all nations so that people would know the truth. And this, if you're paying attention to what's going on today, this is so radically countercultural. Because today, any claim to absolute truth is viewed with utter disdain. And people will even say things like, well, if you were born in such and such a place, you would have been a Hindu. If you were born in such and such a place, you would be a Muslim. Well, let me just say this. Jesus Christ is Lord of Saudi Arabia. Jesus Christ is Lord of India. Jesus Christ is Lord of Hindi people. He's Lord of Arabic people. It doesn't matter where you were born. There's only one being who possesses sole authority in heaven and on earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter where you were born. Jesus is the Lord there. He's the Lord of Africa. So we, so you can call it colonizing if you want. The people of Africa will have to give an account of whether, of, of, of knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we gotta tell them. It's not their local gods. It's not their ancestors. It's not the pantheon of Hindu gods. It's not the Chinese Communist Party. Jesus Christ is Lord.
He alone is worthy of their full and lifelong service and devotion. Jesus Christ is not the Lord of Western society. He's not the Lord of white people. Jesus is Lord of all. He's worthy of the worship of all. And we must tell him. So the Great Commission is grounded on Jesus' authority. And then the second part is it's empowered by Jesus' presence. He says, And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So now think about this. Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, right? He's bodily, he's not going to be with them. And yet at the same time, he says, but I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, now how is that? Well, we know John chapter 16, verse 7 says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. And we know what happened, don't we? Jesus ascended into heaven just like he said that he would. And when he did that, the angels told the disciples, you see how he went up into heaven in the same way he's going to come right back down from heaven. But then, on the day of Pentecost, the promise of the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit came upon God's people. It never left. And so Jesus, though gone has never really left. He was there and he has been there all along in the hearts of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means that no disciple in the history of the church has ever been made alone. But Christ lives within the hearts of his people, leading them and guiding them and directing them and empowering them to fulfill the mission that he has entrusted to them. The Apostle Paul said that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So if we're a Christian, we can't, we can't go around filling, get, filling our lives and our minds up with a bunch of excuses of why we can't do what God has commanded us to do if Jesus Christ lives in our hearts. Just as Jesus did nothing apart from his father, so we do nothing apart from Jesus. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But have you ever thought that the opposite of that is also true? With Jesus, we can do everything. So you can't say, well, I can't make disciples. Well, it doesn't matter if you can or not, because Jesus can. And Jesus lives in you. You know, when God called Moses and told him, you know, oh, just lead a few million people out of slavery from the world's most powerful nation. And Moses said, God, I can't do that. I can't even talk right. You know what God told him? First of all, he said, stop blabbering your mouth, which I made. And then he said, you remember what he said? I will be with you. 
And what does Jesus say when he gives his church the commission? I'll be with you. I'll be with you. God's presence is with his people to fulfill the commission. And it takes away every excuse we might give for not making disciples because we can. Because Jesus is with us. So number one, Jesus' resurrection stirs us to worship. Number two, Jesus' power and presence sustains our mission. And number three, Jesus' command sets the agenda. Jesus' command sets the agenda. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So, I really think the context is just as important, if not more important than the commission itself, but we got to talk about the commission. We don't decide what we do as a church. Jesus decides what we do as a church. Because we are Jesus' church. The force of this statement lies in the command. There's one command for all you English teachers out there. There's a command and the rest are participles. The command gets the emphasis. The command is make disciples. That's the command. What Jesus left the church to do is to make disciples. What does a disciple mean? It means a follower, a learner, an imitator. One who would, one who would learn from their rabbi, their teacher, their master. And then go on and carry forth that teaching. They didn't have teaching of their own. They learned it from their master and they would carry forth their master's teaching so that others would know it and believe. The command to make disciples, as Jesus said, involves going, baptizing, and teaching to observe. And I'm going to talk about each of those very briefly. The first is to go. You can't make disciples if you don't go anywhere. You know, I know we got this virus and all, but I don't know about you, but I'm tired of allowing a virus to give the church an excuse to be disobedient to God. It's time we just stop. Did you know that in, in ancient times and when there were plagues and there was even no such thing as vaccines, everyone else would run and the Christians would stay to care for those who were dying? Because they weren't afraid of death. Because in ancient times, a, a, a mom might have 15 kids and only five of them live. Because they knew what death was and they weren't afraid of it. We're so inoculated and so insulated from reality that we live in fear. You gotta go. You can't make disciples if you don't go anywhere. You gotta go next door. You gotta go across the street. You gotta go across the grocery store. You gotta go across town, across the county, across the state, across the world. You gotta go somewhere. And it's time to say that enough is enough. We've gotta go. And number two, we gotta baptize, right? You go and you baptize. Now baptize is a loaded term there because it implies everything that leads up to baptism. Okay? And, and when you read the New Testament, what leads up to baptism? 
Well, you go, somebody goes, and then somebody preaches the gospel. And then when the gospel is believed upon, that when a person exercises genuine faith in Jesus Christ, then that person is baptized. So, so baptism here is a loaded term implying going, preaching the gospel. Not all will believe, but some will. And those who believe are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, to represent and to signify that they have become, they have gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Holy Spirit has entered into them by faith in Jesus Christ. They are now new creatures. They are now the followers of Jesus Christ. And they are publicly identifying with Him and following Him with their life. That's what baptism means. So we go. And then we have to preach Christ. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That he's coming back according to the scriptures. And he came to pay the penalty for sin so that everyone who believed in him might be forgiven of their sin, given the hope of eternal life, brought back into the purpose for which they were made, that is relationship with God, knowing God Almighty, living as a son and daughter of the living God, and reigning with him forever. So we go and we preach the gospel and some will believe and the ones who believe, we baptize them. And they are now part of his people and they are part of the public church. But the Bible also says that when a person is baptized, that's that's not the end of your responsibility towards them. That's just the beginning. Because then Jesus says, we have to teach that person to then observe all that Jesus has commanded us. So we have to do both. We have to preach the gospel and baptize. And then the people who believe and baptize, we then have to teach them how to follow Jesus, right? It's not automatic. You know, when a person becomes a Christian, they could be a baby Christian, an immature Christian. And my goodness, who wants to say a baby their whole life? Our churches are filled with baby Christians who never grew up. You got to learn to obey Jesus. And so, and so we gotta do, we gotta do both, right? And, and it's always a struggle. Some churches are good at going, but not so good at teaching to obey. And the danger there is that you either have a church full of baby Christians, who never really grow up, or in many cases you have a church that's full of false professors. They got baptized in the emotion of the moment, but they're not truly saved. That's the danger there. Then the opposite danger is you got some churches that are good at teaching, but not going. And the danger there is you got people whose heads are full, but their hearts are empty, because the truth of God isn't moving them and burning in them with the love of neighbor to go preach Christ to others. And so the point is, is you got to do both. God help us be good at both. To go and make disciples and to help those who are disciples grow and mature. Christian. And, and, and that's why it's so crucial, right? We, we preach a lot about grace because grace is so important, right? You can, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot earn your salvation. It's a gift of God. But consistently throughout the New Testament, that if the grace of God has come into your life, it's going to change you. And so 
Jesus says that we have to teach disciples to obey his commands. Why? Because disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. There is no meaningful sense in which you can call yourself a disciple of Christ if you don't obey Christ. And so we have to do both. We have to preach Christ, tell people about Jesus. They're, they're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And then we teach them to obey Christ. Because that's what Jesus came to do is to save us from our sin and to free us from the grip of sin so that, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can stop sinning. Lust, greed, anger, pride, sexual morality, hypocrisy, the deceitfulness. Christians don't practice those things because Christians obey Christ. And so this is the process. Go, preach, baptize, teach. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Go, preach, baptize, teach, rinse and repeat until Jesus comes back. If you're going and you're preaching and you're baptizing and you're teaching others about Jesus, when Jesus comes back, you ain't going to be ashamed. But a lot of us, God, help us. When Jesus comes back, there ain't no telling what we'll be doing. We got a mission. We got a plan. God has given us the plan. It's a good plan. <laughs> it's not a complicated plan. Jesus, the greatest man, the greatest preacher who ever lived, didn't start a mega church. When he died and when he rose again on the day of Pentecost, there was about 120 disciples. But he changed the world because he preached the gospel. He saved people from their sins and he sent his spirit. And 2,000 years later, because Christians did something as simple as tell others about Jesus, baptize them, teach them to observe him, and then tell them, okay, now you start the process over. For 2,000 years, now there are believers in every continent on earth. We can't improve upon the plan. We just got to follow the plan. It's not rocket science, but it is obedience. That's why I think, and so I'm going to say it one more time. The best way that we have to intentionally do this is discipleship groups. And I'm going to double down on this till you guys get sick of hearing it, and then it'll flip and you don't get sick of hearing it, but then you're going to get excited every time you hear it. Because you're going to say, wow, yeah, I have been part of a discipleship group. And you know what? It has changed my life. You know why? Because I'm not a person who just shows up on Sunday anymore and then walks out the door and doesn't talk about Jesus to, or hear about Jesus till next Sunday. Because now I'm not this anonymous person who nobody knows me, but I have invested intentional time. I've made it a priority in my life because I will prioritize to watch the Georgia game but not talk about other about Jesus with other Christians. You make time to do what you want to do. You can 
meet with other believers and say, hey, I'm having a hard time this week. Will you pray for me? You can do that. You can say, hey, guys, my cousin, my niece, my daughter, my son, they're really struggling. I need you to help me. You can say, man, I got this coworker, and I've been talking about Jesus, and he's close, but we need to really be praying for him. You can, you can choose not to be anonymous. You can choose to be known. Yes, I think most people don't do it because they're scared. You're intimidated. You don't want people to know who you really are. You're insecure. Guess what? Let me tell you a secret. Everybody's insecure. Everybody's insecure. You know what the devil wants you to do? The devil wants you to be so absorbed in yourself that you never let anyone else in. That's not God speaking to you. That's Satan. Open the door. Let other people into your life. Expose yourself to the accountability of others to read the Bible, to be on mission, to live life together. And guess what? Your life will change. And you will become an instrument. Bible says iron sharpens iron. God will make you sharp. God will, God will start using you for things that you didn't think you would ever do. But we can't afford to miss this. We can't afford to, to fall short of the mission that Christ has given to us. So, join the discipleship group. And as I close, what I've been describing today is the true story of the world. You turn on the news, you turn on this, you turn on that, they'll tell you all kinds of stories about all kinds of things. Let me tell you something. The only story that's going to matter a billion years from now is Jesus Christ is coming back. He lived, he died, he rose again, he's coming back. What did you do with Jesus? Here's our chance. Here's our chance to say, you know what, Jesus? For a long time I did, but not anymore. I'm not holding anything back from you. This is our chance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for another day. God, some people didn't have the gift of another day today. But we did. We thank you. Lord, life is short. Your brother, Lord Jesus, the apostle James said, don't even say that tomorrow we'll do this or that because we don't even know if we'll be here tomorrow. If the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Lord, if you will, we want to be found faithful with the time we have left, however long that may be. Lord, I confess, we confess that we've held back from you. Lord, we want to hold back no longer. We want to sharpen one another. We want to be part of one another's lives. We want to live life as it was meant to be lived in intimate community with you and with others, knowing and being known and being used to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. Lord, people are drowning out there, not even knowing what they're looking for, just knowing they don't have it, and we have the answer. 
But God, you got to help us. Give us faith. Give us courage. Give us zeal. Give us wisdom. Give us discipline. Give us intentionality. Help us be obedient. Help us stick to the plan. It's your plan, God. It's a good plan. We want to follow your plan. To make disciples here and across the world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.